Most of you here will never meet Roy this side of paradise, but every Sunday morning when you walk in here, you have cause to be grateful to him. Were you to meet Roy, you'd be fortunate to get a handshake from him. A quick, I touched you, that should be enough kind of handshake might be all you get. He's a man of few words. He'd rather be sitting out in the parking lot listening to adventures in Odyssey than schmoozing and chit-chatting after the service. After you knew him for a while, you might get him engaged in five minutes of the Green Bay Packers or hunting, but that would be about it. Roy loves his wife, Roy loves his sons, and yes, Roy loves the Packers. Came from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. But most of all, Roy loves the Lord. I don't believe you will ever, ever find Roy in a pulpit unless you've knocked him unconscious and propped him up. Unlikely he will ever teach a Sunday school class. And even in Sunday school, his inputs were so rare that when Roy spoke, the room became a hushed silence. Roy speaking? Everybody was attentive to what Roy would say because he never spoke. On this plane, within the church, Roy is not going to get noticed. But I believe in God's economy, in God's heart, Roy is dear and precious. Today, this church still exists and meets because Roy fought tenaciously for it back in 2004. The very lights that you sit under here today and throughout this building were either wired by Roy's hands or he oversaw them being wired. As I began to plan out this study of Isaac, I thought of Roy. When, when you think about Isaac... You know, man, do I even remember a sermon on Isaac? There's a great one by Ravi Zacharias out there uh, about Isaac and Rebecca. I, Isaac, take thee, Rebecca. It's a beautiful, beautiful message. But that's about it. Um, you seldom hear of him in analogies. And the only time you, you come across him in Scripture is usually with his father and his son. And him sandwiched right in the middle of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in truth, you know, the cream filling in an Oreo cookie gets more notice than does Isaac. So who is this man? Now in scripture, the patriarchs hold, and this, is, this sermon is going to be a little bit more teaching than it will be, you know, expositional per se to introduce to you who Isaac is and what he mad at, what, why are we going to bother with this guy? Well, the patriarchs do hold a special place in God's word. And the, the term patriarch or patriarchy has really fallen under disrepute in our culture today. Um, we all hear the term alma mater. You know, my, my mother, essentially. You know, my dear mother as we think of our university. Mater is Latin for mother. Pater is Latin for father. Patriarch, arc would be a leader. Patriarch would be the father leader of the family, the head of the family. So when we think of the biblical patriarchs, we think of really the head of 
the Israelite family. God called Abraham, made his covenant with Abraham, promised again his covenant to Isaac, promised again his covenant to Jacob, and from Jacob, whose name was subsequently changed to Israel, we get the nation of Israel stemming from that. But throughout Scripture, as you're reading through it, you always come to the prominence of Abraham. Abraham, the father of Israel. And you come to the prominence of Jacob, for the nation was named after him, and you see his connivings referenced again and again. But where is Isaac? So today we're going to begin this study. And this series is going to extend over the next few weeks. If I don't complete it by the time Jeremy starts preaching again, I will use my opportunities to preach later in the year to finish it up as we go along. My intention today is, anybody ever flown over the Grand Canyon? Okay, yeah. Oh, man, that's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible to fly over the Grand Canyon. You can do it very quickly. And you see some amazing things from up above. But it's far different when you are down rafting the rivers and walking among the rocks. Today we're just going to fly over the Grand Canyon and in the weeks to come we're going to get down into the rocks there. On the top of the back of your bulletin you will see a poor man's timeline there with a little cross and a 1000 BC and a 2000 BC. The time of the patriarchs, the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is at about 2000 BC, 2000 years before Christ. Okay, just to kind of put that in your mind, we're 2000 years the other side of Christ. So if you were to flip our timeline over, that's how far back you go. We're talking 4000 years ago. Where do you find it in Scripture? It begins in Genesis chapter 12 with God's call to Abraham, but you don't find his birth until Genesis chapter 21. That is where God God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, promises him a nation, but Isaac isn't born until chapter 21. Isaac's death comes about in chapter 35 and verse 29. But really from chapter 28 of Genesis to chapter 35, you don't read about Isaac at all. So the lion's share of what you're going to read about Isaac, if you want to read Isaac's story, it's just 21 to 27. That's it. And not all of it deals specifically with Isaac. So that is where we are going to anchor in the weeks to come. But what was his impact on the rest of Scripture? Why why is Isaac significant? Well, it starts out really as soon as you move out of Genesis. Because in Isaac, we see three things within the Old Testament. The first thing we see of Isaac within the Old Testament is that he will hearken Israel back to the promised covenant that God made with him and his father and his son. 
Typically, when you see Isaac's name in the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus, it is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's like they're, un, they're, they're like stuck together. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, almost all the time, especially in Exodus, as God is freeing his people. This is to remind them of God's covenant promise that he made to them to make them a nation and to provide them a land. As you get into later parts of Exodus and into Deuteronomy, you read about the land that was promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And we read about that a little bit here in adult Sunday school class today. But as you get out of the law, as you go through Judges, Joshua, Judges, and Samuel, you don't find Isaac's name hardly at all. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not hardly mentioned. Until you get to the time of David. Okay, here, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 1 Chronicles chapter 16. On your timeline, see the little 1000 AD? Okay, that's where we went. We went from 2000, or sorry, 1000 BC. We went from 2000 BC to 1000 BC. David, Solomon, Saul, David, and Solomon are at about the 1000 BC mark. Moses coming out of Egypt is at about 1500 BC, right in between the two of them. So just for time's sake, just to kind of give you an orientation. Here in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, you are at the high watermark of Israel in the middle of David's reign. David has peace all around. And what is happening, excuse me, in chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles, is the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into the tabernacle. Great time of celebration over all that God has done. I alluded to it as I opened the worship service. I'm going to emphasize it again. If you want to immerse yourself into some glorious prayers to the living God, Read all of David's prayer here. Read David's prayer later that um, I'll bring up in First uh, Chronicles 29. And also Solomon's prayer of dedication to the temple. They're staggering and extraordinary in their love of the living God and all that he has done and exalting him and referencing our dependence upon him. Uh, so I, I commend those to you. So here in First Chronicles, 6, uh, uh, 1 Chronicles 16, God is going to essentially fulfill his promise to Israel. He has made them a great nation. He has subdued, they haven't driven, driven them all out, but he has subdued the nations all around him. They have peace. And you will find here, 1 Chronicles 16, verses 8 through 36, elsewhere in your Bible. It's also Psalm 105. 
Okay, uh, it's, it is a Psalm of David. Here is where it takes place. This is what Shauna read to us. Oh, give thanks to the Lord in verse 8. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. We are bringing, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle. And so David is exulting in the works that God has done. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. So not only are we telling the people, we're also singing praises to God here in this event. Glory in His holy name. Bask in it. Delight yourself in God. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done. His miracles and the judgments He uttered. Oh, offspring of Israel, His servant. Children of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made a thousand years ago. It doesn't say that, but I'm just emphasizing that. He made this covenant a thousand years ago. We didn't exist as a nation a thousand years ago. You know, we're at the, we're at the back end of the dark ages at 1000 B.C., the Reformation wasn't until 1500 B.C. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So David is going back a thousand years and, and exhorting Israel to remember the covenant. Remember his covenant forever. The covenant he made with Abraham. And notice what he says. His sworn promise to Isaac. God promised Isaac, what is being fulfilled here today? And David's mind goes back to that patriarch. Ultimately, verse 17, which he then confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So, we see as you go through Exodus, God's promised covenant. Here we see the fulfillment of God's promised kingdom. Both here as the ark is brought into the tabernacle, the tabernacle still being a tent, but then God puts on David's heart to build a temple. And because he was a man of war, a man of blood, he is unable by God to build that temple. God says, your son Solomon will build it. But... David provides the provision, which is what I read at the start of worship in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And even then, as David is bringing in the offerings, as he's looking at the promised kingdom fulfilled all around him, he hearkens back again to God's faithfulness as he calls them to remember back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 17 of First Chronicles 29 says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people 
who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. God is, or David is calling upon God to remember that which he promised. God, you made a promise a thousand years ago to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You are fulfilling it here. Remember that promise even as we go forward from this day that our hearts would be directed toward you, that we would stay faithful toward you. So within the Old Testament, we see God's promised covenant in the person of Isaac. We see the fulfillment of God's promised kingdom also starting out in the person of Isaac in one of the three. There's, a, there's an interesting, another interesting sec, section in Amos. Flip to Amos if you don't, don't know where Amos is. You can look it up in your index. Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. So I've got to find it myself. There we are. You rarely find Isaac spoken of all by himself. And when Israel is spoken of nationally, it's spoken of as Israel. Essentially, Jacob's son, or uh, Isaac's son, Jacob, Israel. But there's a prophetic affection in Amos chapter 7 uh, toward Isaac. He uses Isaac's name. I lost my reference. He speaks of Isaac's name instead of Jacob's because Isaac, again, was like Roy. He didn't do anything wrong. Isaac was a man of affection for God and God for Isaac. Whereas Jacob was the one who wrestled with God and continued to wrestle with God throughout his time. I can't find Isaac's name in seven. Anyone? Thank you. Beautiful, thank you. And the Lord said to me, start in verse eight, said to me, Amos, what do you see? And he said, I see a plumb line. The Lord, uh, then the Lord said, behold, I am setting up a plumb line, a measurement in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the sword of Jeroboam. So the high places during the time of Isaac are essentially going to be put down. Because Isaac's a wanderer in the land amongst a foreign people. So we see this promised covenant, a promised kingdom, and the prophetic affections that God has toward Isaac. But you go, okay, again, we're New Testament people. Jesus Christ has come. What relevance does Isaac have for a New Testament Christian? It's kind of a faulty thinking, but we'll, we'll press on from there because it's, 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 a, it's a valid question. When you come into the New Testament and you start to read through the Gospels, the first thing you come to is the genealogy of Matthew. That begins with, 
Abraham. Why? Because Matthew was written primarily to the Jews. The second name in the list of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is anchoring the coming of the kingdom in the person there of Isaac. You also read about the lineage passing through Isaac in Luke. But not only in the New Testament do we see in Isaac the coming kingdom, we see a consistency in the word of God in Jesus Christ. There are two times that Jesus references Isaac. Turn to Matthew chapter 8. To show God's consistency across the Testaments, bridging the Testaments. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 verses 5 through 13 is the healing of the centurion's servant. Some servants come to Jesus saying, hey, there's a centurion and his servant is sick. And the leaders of Israel go, yeah, he's a faithful guy. He's a good guy. And so Jesus says, I'll go with him. And they say, no, 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 no. He says that all you got to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus' response to them is truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus Christ takes the person of Isaac, and the way he says this, they will come and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like they're still alive. Why? Because they are. He still exists. He still exists in heaven and will be in the coming kingdom. And people will come as will this Gentile centurion will come. Jesus Christ is emphasizing in the person of Isaac, there is a reality of the coming kingdom. And those who... No Christ will come and recline at table despite their national identity. And there will be some in the family that are not a part of that. The other time Jesus references Isaac is in Matthew chapter 22. The Sadducees are trying to trick Jesus. And they set up a riddle, essentially, a problem about the man who marries a woman and before they have children, he dies. And so the brother marries and he dies and, and so on. Who is going to be this woman's husband in the resurrection? Verse 29 of Matthew 22. Jesus answered them and said, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of He is not God of the dead, but of the living. 
So in both of these examples, Jesus Christ is pointing to the truth of the life to come by going 2,000 years before to highlight the patriarch Isaac. There is a consistency in the word. As you move out of the gospels, you see that consistency or this continuity play out. Drew preached last Sunday in Acts chapter 3 and verse 13. Peter brings healing to the lame man and as he does so, he cites, again, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This isn't something new to you people, is his emphasis to them. This same God who raised Christ from the dead is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, a deacon full of grace and truth, doing great power among the people, Acts chapter 6, 8 tells us. He's brought before the council on trumped up charges. And Stephen begins by making an apology, not, oh, I'm sorry, but a defense, a defense of the faith. And once again, he cites Isaac. Stephen says, I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. That would be Abraham. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And as you read through Stephen's sermon, you're going, where's he going with this? But what you see with Stephen's sermon is God's faithfulness to the patriarchs in doing what he said he would. What he contrasts that with is their faithlessness to him. God is faithful. He has been faithful from the patriarchs to this day. And you reject him. Even in the epistles, even in Paul's epistles, we see God's constant grace exemplified in the person of Isaac. Turn to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, you'll find perhaps one of the naughtiest, not naughty, but naughty, uh, like a tied-up shoelace, naughtiest sections of Scripture with regard to God's selection and election in verses 6 through 13. And Isaac is emphasized here by Paul to show God's grace even to us today. In chapter 9, verse 6, it says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be, be named. We're going to find that Abraham next week connives a whole bunch to try and get himself a son that God has promised him. 
And he does have a son, another son, by Ishmael, or by, by Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. His name is Ishmael. So he has two sons. But that is not the one that God promised that his descendants would come from, that the nation would come from. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 28, Paul makes that same argument to the Galatians when he tries to contrast the difference between trying to follow after God by doing good deeds, by works, by trying to be sanctified by my works, or by faith. And he speaks again of both Isaac and Ishmael in Galatians chapter 4. Lastly, in the New Testament, we see Isaac spoken of in situations where faith is manifest. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of the faith of Abraham as he is going to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac merely passive in this situation. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. But he also speaks of, the writer of Hebrews speaks of Isaac's faith in blessing his sons. Isaac's faith in blessing his sons. It's a peculiar statement that we will unpack in a few weeks also. But there's a concrete faith spoken of as it comes to Isaac. James also uses Isaac to highlight the import and importance of faith in the believer's life when he speaks of the sacrifice that Abraham is going to make of his son. Believing that Abraham, that God would even raise Isaac from the dead. So, few today will heed the lessons of Scripture. Few today even read Scripture. We in the church have God's Word open to us by the Holy Spirit. We have it on our phones. We have it on our shelves at home. And within the circles of many who call themselves Christians, many will dismiss the Old Testament as meaningless and senseless. Here today, briefly, we have gone through much of the Bible and seen Isaac's name over and over and over again, not merely as a historical individual that he was, but in tying him to the faith that we hold dear today in tying it to the grace that God has lavished on us in the person of Jesus Christ. In Isaac, we see play out what Christ has done in redemptive history. You know, I read last week before I preached Romans 15 verse 4 that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And a key name that comes up again and again is that of Isaac. 
And so we were going to spend some time looking at Isaac's life and, and gleaning God's glory and seeing um, how relevant a man 4,000 years ago is to us today. But before I leave here, let me offer up some encouragement from this. I mean, just, I mean, what, is, what do I glean from this overview of Isaac? Um, one point is that all of God's word is relevant. All of God's word is relevant to us today. I can't, I can't go, well, I, I, I read about Isaac. Maybe, maybe I remember him from a flannel graph as a kid. But all of God's word is relevant. And if I neglect any of God's word, maybe not overtly, but tacitly, I dismiss it as irrelevant. Paul reminded Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So all of God's word is irrelevant. Second thing to note is, is that there are no little people. There aren't, well, okay, there, there are small, shorter people. But there are no little people in God's economy. Francis Schaeffer wrote, wrote a great book by that title. If you ever come across it, I commend it to you. But to see Roy, the man I spoke of at the start of the sermon, if you were to see him, you'd kind of shrug and go, eh, not much. There's not much there. Oh yeah, there is. And what he has done in this church alone, his impact on my life has been fabulous for the cause of Christ. So when, when Isaac comes to mind, we go, eh, oh, not so. Not so. We've seen his name scattered throughout scripture. So let, let that truth wash over us regarding other people. There are no little people. Regarding ourselves, you are created in the image of the living God within our church and within life. And understand this, really, the, our final point is, is that God's glory will shine forth in each person. In His grace, in His mercy, or in His justice. Definitely in His providence. And so over the weeks and months ahead, we're going to look and behold God's glory on a man 4,000 years ago. A man most people don't even consider. You just blow right by his name. What, what, who was that guy? Isaac. It was Isaac. I pray and hope that Isaac will hold a dear place for us. For the saint, God calls us to trust in him, to trust in his word, to follow after his word, to delight in his presence, to follow after him in joy and peace and obedience. Perhaps, maybe, our quiet and steady life in Christ will leave such a legacy as Isaac's. To the one who does not know where he stands before God today, God extended his grace to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he extends it to us today in Christ Jesus, to the one who does not know him. In Isaac, we see God's grace, for we are nothing but rebels before God. In Christ, we see God's grace played out in the sacrifice that pays the penalty for my sin and for yours.
Will we turn to Him today? If you do not know Him today as Lord and Savior, may the God who called Isaac call you even now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you showed your grace and truth to a family 4,000 years ago. And that through them, you show your holiness and mercy to us here today. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you, through the power of the gospel, bring revival even to Wichita Falls? Would you let it start here? If there be any here who does not know you, Father, open their heart that they might see their sin, hate it, confess it, repent of it, and turn back to you and find wholeness and restoration in Christ. God, let the faithfulness of Isaac exhort us and encourage us in the weeks and months to come. Ask that you would shake our hearts and minds. Help us to love you with the love you deserve. In Jesus' name. Amen.